Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books uh, in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the double pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yagal Bronner, who's Associate Professor in the Department of Asian Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and also Dr. Lawrence McRae, who is Professor of Sanskrit Studies in the Department of Asian Studies at Cornell University. Uh, they are both um, they are both co-editors of a fascinating brand new publication. It's an OUP publication uh, coming out any minute now. Uh, first words, last words, new theories for reading old texts in 16th century India. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Right. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I'm sure the subtitle says much towards answering this, but you know, what is this book about? What is the primary object of study for this book? So um, the book is has a sort of dual focus. It's about a very specific controversy that took place in 17th in 16th century India, South India, between several major theory, theologians and scriptural theorists of scriptural interpretation. Uh, the most famous of them is, is Abhayadikshita, who is um, a really important intellectual in many fields, and both Dr. Bronner and I have worked on him in various domains before. Um, and he is um, he's a great figure in poetics, poetic theory, um, uh, what's called Vedanta, which is a kind of scriptural hermeneutic uh, theological sometimes called philosophy, but it's kind of a borderline discipline. And what the book is mainly centrally about is uh, what's called Mimamsa, which is kind of the the Vedic theory of scriptural interpretation. Um, So he wrote this book called The Power of the Opening in sometime in the late 1500s, not exactly sure. Um, And it's specifically an attack on another great scriptural theorist from a rival tradition, this fellow named Vyasatirita, who of the Dvaita, the dualist Vedanta tradition. And basically he wrote a book-length attack, short book, um, on this particular question of interpretation. And the question is this. The question is, when we interpret texts, do we allow the opening, the earliest portion of the text that we read to dictate our interpretation of what follows? That's to say, does the opening... Is the opening more powerful than the closing, or is the closing the later part of the text force us to reinterpret what we've seen before? And uh, we try and chart the history of this controversy uh, for about a thousand years before this, but it's really in this moment in the 16th century that this bursts onto the scene as a really important issue. Um, to to very very briefly um, be reductive about it, uh, Vyasatirta, the dualist, following his master Madhva, who founded the dualist tradition, says that the closing always wins, right? That when we read something and then something else later in the text contradicts it, we revise our interpretation of what came before. And Apayadikshita, following this earlier tradition of Mimamsa, says, no, it's the other way around. 
once we start reading a text, it tells us what it's about and it forms a sort of pre-understanding that dictates our interpretation of what comes later. So what we read first kind of sets the terms of our understanding and everything that comes later has to be fit into that. So there's a little bit of a back and forth. Um, the Asatirta asserts the power of the closing, Abhayavichuta in this book, The Power of the Opening, rejects this, and then the Asatirta's grand pupil, Vijayendra Tirta, around the same time, a little bit later than Abhayavichuta, uh, they were contemporaries and knew each other, he writes a rejoinder to that, defending the power of the closing again. So these three texts are really the centerpiece of the book, and the, the middle chapters are mainly about kind of investigating their arguments and exploring how they work. And then as we sort of investigated this debate around the question of sequence, we decided that we wanted to expand on this in two ways. One is to look in a broader cross-cultural context at how other scriptural traditions, mainly the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, investigate the question of sequence. So we have sort of large comparative sections in the introduction and conclusion. And the other thing we wanted to do is think about this specific debate about a specific question in the broader context of Indian intellectual life in the 17th century. And for several decades now, um, there's been a recognition that this is a period of, of self great and self-conscious novelty. Um, there's a period of what's come to be called the new intellectuals. Um, and we wanted to sort of investigate the ways in which innovation happens in a largely at least outwardly traditionalist intellectual culture, such as India. Uh, some people have argued that while there was this period of innovation, the innovation was in some ways constrained or limited by the perceived need to conform to existing truths and existing propositions in already known systems. And that there was a what, what our both of our common teachers, Sheldon Pollock, has called uh, newness of the intellect constrained by an oldness of the will. And we wanted to not attack, but to sort of nuance this understanding and suggest that, um, that there is a newness going on beneath the surface that's sometimes masked by a guise of traditionalism. So that's the basic story of the book, if that makes sense. Yes, you touched on um, um, a great many aspects of the book. Um, that was a great uh, introduction. Um, so couple of the themes that you touched on, I'll maybe draw out a little more clearly. So um, maybe the best way to do this is um, uh, who would most be interested in this book? I know you touched on that, but let's draw that out a bit more. So uh, it's it's an interesting book in that it addresses different audiences. Something that I think is a little bit unusual in, in the field of South Asian studies. So uh, the core chapters of the book, uh, the book that uh, chart this kind of pamphlet war, this controversy about the question of uh, the place of sequence in scriptural interpretation and scriptural hermeneutics, uh, there, especially you know, chapters three to five, that each of the each of which has a hero, each of which has a main text. They're kind of hardcore uh, philological and, and philosophical and historical studies of the arguments in these texts, and they're addressed more to uh, students and people who are interested in the intellectual history of India, uh, in the history of the new 
intellectuals in India, that is the, the, in, the in the setting of, of uh, the social and political and historical setting of 16th and 17th centuries India, the kind of the main camps, the, the uh, Shaivas and the Vaishnavas, adherents of Shiva and adherents of Vishnu, the dualists, the non-dualists, the uh, Vishista Advaitins, the qualified non-dualists, all these like big positions in, in Indian uh, intellectual history and, and Indian philosophy and Indian theology of the period. Uh, so people who want to know about Vedanta, people who want to know about Mimamsa, they would like to read these central chapters. But the book uh, also addresses people who are interested in more general questions, two general questions uh, that, that Larry touched upon. One is the, is the question of innovation. How does innovation happen within a traditional system of thought? And how do people allow themselves to, to express new ideas within the constraints? And how is this different between between, let's say, early modern India and other contexts such as uh, early medieval Europe or, or, uh, and, um, or other periods in, in, in Islamic thought and, and Jewish thought. So, that's, so people who are interested in these questions would be very interested in chapter one's, chapters one and six of this book, which do not you know, necessitate a lot of pre- knowledge of, of, of these kind of hardcore Sanskrit intellectual questions or, uh, or Indian philosophical questions. And then another, another crowd, I think, who might be interested in this book where people are people who are interested in comparative uh, hermeneutics and questions of sequence in hermeneutics. It turns out, and this is something we discovered when we wanted to broaden our horizons here, that the question of sequence is a dominant question in, in these different hermeneutic uh, traditions. And they came up on the one hand, so, so especially the Abrahamic traditions, each on its own and together, came up with very di- different answers to the question than, let's say, our heroes in this, in, in this book, Vyasatirta, Apai Dikshita, Vijendra Tirta, such people. But at the same time, the methodology is interestingly uh, sometimes very similar, and there are many, many um, interesting overlaps. So I think people who are interested in scriptural hermeneutics in these traditions would also be very interested in, in reading uh, sections of her book, at least. You know, one of the elements of the book that I really uh, appreciated or was intrigued by was this, you know, uh, a very uh, n- nerdy, uh, South Asian nerdy nuts and bolts uh, meat of the sandwich, right? And yet this um, 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 this much more uh, general comparative, perhaps accessible beyond the, the, the subfield, um, um, uh, the uh, frame, right? <laughs> the, the, the bread of the sandwich. Um, I, I quite enjoyed that aspect of the book. Say a bit more about these overlaps that you touch on, for example, with Christianity uh, um, in the book. Well, there's um, what really governs our selection, um, you know, specifically why we looked at um, medieval Christianity um, and the other periods that we do 
is we're interested in the tension between a kind of um, traditionalist scholastic intellectual culture and this um, the ways innovation happens. So specifically thinking about the medieval Christian context, you have a situation where there are people who are trying to to produce innovations. That we specifically focus on this um, this Peter Abelard, who is a very interesting, very controversial figure, who wants to say everything that I'm writing is just a sort of logical development of the scriptures and the Christian tradition, um, and I am just I am just offering up commentary and explanation here. I'm not really doing anything new but was recognized by his contemporaries as doing quite radical things. And in fact, in the case of medieval Europe, was subject to severe uh, penalties. Uh, his works were burned and banned. He was forbidden to write for a certain period of time. Uh, so it's very socially, politically, it's a very different context. In India, there was no kind of overt state suppression of opinion. But there are similar dynamics that there are these sort of long-running thousand-year-old uh, schools of thought with often with specific foundational texts that people don't want to be seen as violating. And in some ways, there are similar dynamics of wanting to do something new, but not admit that you're doing something new. And what I think is distinctive, I think it's been recognized by many people working in pre-modern Indian intellectual life that actual innovation is going on all the time, often unacknowledged. One of the focuses of our book that I think is distinctive is that we try to make a serious case in, in the authors that we are looking at, specifically, especially the last, the later two, Abhayya Dikshita and Vijayendra Tirtha, that not, they're not simply subconsciously or tacitly deviating, they are consciously deviating from, you know, they're, they're in some ways compromising the tenets of their own traditions in the interests of a certain theoretical innovation, but that they still want to maintain a pose, an insincere pose, we argue, of uh, faithfulness to the tradition. And that in some cases, at least, uh, these, these insincere protestations of tradition were called out and challenged by people within the tradition, as they were in the case of Avalar in Europe. So we are interested in looking at sort of parallels in other traditions to the ways that innovation can happen. You know, so people can sort of sneakily innovate and say, oh, I'm just being a humble commentator on what came before when they're actually doing quite radical things. And that's what we really wanted to make a case for. Um, a Trojan horsing um, various uh, interpretations <laughs> into tradition. Um, yeah, in fact, um, in fact uh, if, I, if I may add, uh, Raj, if I may add something to that. So, absolutely. So what we, what we discovered is when we, when we read these texts, it does, there is a big gap between the rhetorics, the rhetorics of the books from the very title, right? Here's one book saying the victory of the opening, and the other book is called the triumph of the ending, of the closing, and they and they have this like bombastic rhetoric of how the other is wrong and how I'm right and so on and so forth. But un, not very deep underneath these kind of rhetorical uh, Poses, you find that Apayadikshita is developing an altogether new cognitive theory of how we process information when we read, where sequence play very little, if no, role whatsoever. And Vijendra basically 
adopts this position, and he's not even trying to show that his position is better, but only that his position is no less good, and therefore that he too could be right. And there is an amazing convergence between their two positions, which under, again, under this very thin veneer of traditional posturing, kind of settle on the, on, on, on the, on the shared conclusion that the traditional positions, their party lines, their respective lines seem less and less uh, to be of relevance to the new discourse that they are both participating in, in fact, creating, inventing in the 16th century. Now, is that, would you say that's what struck you most about this research? I, I don't mean this to be a leading question. You know, what, what sort of, uh, having looked at this and, and churned this book out, what sort of uh, um, sticks out in your mind the most or, or perhaps surprised you, intrigued you about what you found out? Yeah, I think, I think this is one of the most striking things that we discovered. There, there are several striking things to this literature, at least from my, my perspective. One is the immense complexity and erudition of the discussion. You really need to be steeped in so many continuous traditions. And you need to know all the publications for about a millennium (laughs) and running. And you need to know all these methodologies. So it's it's really uniquely complicated discussions that seem very continuous and present themselves as like, we're just defending, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're a little bit, you know, putting the polish on these like well-established, well-formulated traditions and protecting them from these attacks from the others. But what is, what is again, really striking is how consciously, knowingly, flippantly, audaciously, the actual positions of the book are, of these books are different from these rhetorical posturings. Maybe Larry wants to, wants to answer. Yeah, I would concur with all of that. I think that we've both in our earlier works, uh, separately and together to a certain extent, been interested in this, yeah, in this what's new about intellectual life in 16th and 17th century India, what drives this, this sort of explosion of new, new texts, new genres. And, um, I think we've both come to the conclusion that that certain figures, at least, sort of, uh, and Apaidikshita, our central figure in some ways, is one of the main examples. There's a kind of new, there's a very different way that people relate to their traditions. That Apaidikshita, not just here and but in his other works, he has this professional distance, right? He will argue for something um, that he may or may not really believe. He will argue for different things in different works. He actually writes in two different, somewhat rival schools of Vedanta, uh, defending them both and defending them both in ways that um, it's not clear always what his real position is in other works too, in other fields. Um, and he he almost invents, or he he and his predecessor Vyasacharya, though we've both argued, um, sort of invent a sort of new kind of historicist scholarship, where each scholar again has total mastery of this thousand year or more tradition going behind them. And in a way, the mastery of the complex long tradition gives you a kind of power 
because you can pick and choose, you can mix and match, you can recombine elements, you can in a way create and defend any position you want within the traditional framework. We talk a little bit about this in the book, and Yigal has written it about it elsewhere, that Abhayadikshita develops this idea of what is called the Sarvatantra Swatantra. The term is not his, but he is kind of the first and a way theorist of this. It's the idea of somebody for whom each system is his own system. It's really what the word means. And he defines this as someone who is able to articulate the position of any of the many rival systems of philosophical and theological thought and defend it. So it's a kind of it's a kind of debater's mastery of the intellectual world such that you can take up any position you want and find a way to defend it, which is, you know, it does display a kind of bravura mastery, but at the same time, it reveals, I won't say a kind of hollowness, but again, a, a kind of um, questionable sincerity right? that um, you can sort of take up a position for tactical or strategic or political reasons, whether it's really what you believe deep down or not. And there's this distancing. And I think this distancing with what one really believes and what one chooses to argue, um, that, that becomes a, an, an increasingly evident tone, not only in Abhayadi chooses own work, but in those of his rivals, especially this Vijay Indra who comes after him. And again, as Yigal says, it begins to look like they really agree on a position that sequence is of minimal or no importance, but they are somehow each, for reasons of their kind of social and institutional positioning, choosing to defend these older positions outwardly while developing a theory that really undermines them. And that's really what came to fascinate us about this entire debate. That is utterly fascinating. Um do we have any sense of uh, the impact, the reach that these conversations would have had? Were they sort of, um, I mean, cloistered in sort of, you know, uh, a, in in a very small circle of an, of an academic circuit, sort of to use a, a parallel for today? Would they have, you know, who would have been in on these conversations and or influenced by them in their historical period? That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, there, there are two, or at least two ways of looking at this. Uh, you know, from the uh, kind of the nuts and balls of this issue of sequence in reading, is sequence in, in interpreting whether the information given in the beginning of a passage is less or more important than the information given at the end of the passage, you could say that's a that's a kind of a hardcore intellectual question that interested only few people, and and indeed we describe in the end of the book how this uh, controversy kind of petered out without leaving a great deal of impression on on the later intellectual history of the late 17th century and 18th century India, but from a different perspective, the the worrying parties were very uh, important politically, socially, intellectually, uh, in the broad circles of, of India in, 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 the, in the 16th and the 17th centuries, and the debates over, you know, dualism versus non-dualism versus qualified non-dualism were debates that... Uh, were taking place between, you could say, uh, uh, political parties that controlled 
funds, that were important in temples, that were important players in, in a variety of uh, social and economical and, and political uh, circles that were both in the South, in the first under the of the domain of the, the Vijayanagara uh, city empire, and after it collapsed, still in the area, and also had, had uh, ramifications in, in other parts of India, all the way up to Benares, which at the same time kind of built itself up as the intellectual center of India, something that, that is in itself, I think, new and very important. And, and people were going back and forth between Benares and the South, between Maharashtra and the South, and between Andhra and the South. And they were debating these kinds of questions. And they, and, and these, and, and so the, 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 you could say that in some ways, uh, it mattered less to the kind of the bigger public what, uh, what is more important, the opening or the closing, which is anyhow seems not to be a great, not to be a, a, at the heart of the matter for Apaya and Vijendra, but it mattered more who you were. Were you, uh, uh, were you presenting yourself as an as a non-dualist or as a dualist or as a qualified dualist and how that impacted your your position in a variety of, of debates that that you know that could also uh, uh, also played be played out and in in a variety of disciplines be it grammar be it theology uh, and so on was there anything else about uh, so, no, go on. so um just to to concur and supplement that there's there's something there's a way in which these debates are very refined and presumably only a very small group of people would be able to access or make sense of them or be in a position to judge them but it is it is um it's not these are not local works these became you know they, as through the spread to Benares and elsewhere these became pan-indian works very quickly there really was something like a sort of um current public intellectual life that was something almost pan-Indian in this period, certainly comprising all of the South, Benares and Bengal and Mithila as major centers of Sanskrit life. And it was tied up in close ways with courts. We talk about this a bit in the, the final chapter or the next to the last chapter, that um, this one particular ruler, two of our main authors, uh, Apai Dikshita and Vijendra Dikshita, were actually... Um, supported at the court of this one particular ruler in the South, Seva Panayaka. And those two, along with the representative of another major Vedanta tradition, the uh, qualified non-dualists, um, Tathacharya, they were all there. And he, he, he writes this verse in one of his inscriptions about how he has these three premier representatives of these three rival intellectual theological traditions represented at his court, each defending his own position and uh, we suggest that there's something like a kind of public intellectual culture, almost a public space that's developed through this. And that is, that is very important to, to, um, to centers of power. Again, maybe not important to the sort of, you know, large masses of people, but there is a kind of need for this. Um, we don't discuss it in the book, but just at the same time, very famously in the North, uh, in the Mughal Empire, right, Akbar is having these assemblies of pundits where he deliberately brings representatives of all the different religious traditions to have debates with each other. Not necessarily to, this is not like the, um, 
the, the story of the Khazars in Europe where the king wants to have all the religious debate and then choose this will be the religion. It's not really to convert people, it's to have a kind of public disputational culture that acknowledges that there are these multiple traditions that are going to persist, that are not going to be wiped out, but it's important to have them all represented. And another aspect of this, as I think Egon suggests too, is that even if most dualist Vedantins would not have read or been interested or been able to access these materials in Sanskrit, there is a kind of prestige economy that's linked to the real economy of royal patronage, that it's important to score points for your team. It's important, and that may be partly, we suggest in the conclusion, why, why this um, two-level um, kind of argument persists, where deep down there's a kind of unity between the two positions, but outwardly they maintain this stark pose of opposition, the power of the closing, the power of the opening, that it's important to score points for your team. It's important to score victories for the dualists, and that somebody like Vijay Andrichir could Great, score a great intellectual conquest for the dualists is important, even if most people who are followers of dualism don't know or care what the debates are about. Right? There's a kind of um, intellect, so there's a kind of intellectual culture almost as a kind of, not a sport, but as a kind of public contest that I think has a certain importance and yet is, is enshrined in, in royal courts in a way that suggests it's important. Well, there's obviously some sort of sparring of swords here or sparring of pens at the very least. Um, um, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on? Well, I think, I mean, if you go, if you have, um, we want this to be, you know, a sort of interesting study in what for us is a fascinating set of, of texts. And we, we hope, despite what you all said about different chapters being used as different people, we tried to write about this very technical debate and we hope that we'll be intelligible and accessible even to non-specialists. We want people to be able to learn the essentials of this debate, even if you come to this knowing nothing. But we also, you know, we want to make a kind of intervention in the way Indian intellectual history, especially early modern Indian intellectual history is studied, right? There's a way in which the study of, of Indian philosophy, especially tends to get pigeonholed that people say, oh, this is what the followers of Mimamsa believe. This is what the followers of non-dualists on to believe. And there's a, there's, a, there's a way of writing about this that kind of reduces the, the historical complexity and the nuance. It just kind of ticks off, you know, what are the main positions of this position? And you'll, you'll, you can discuss different authors from different periods, but the assumption is they're all basically on the same team and that non-dualist Vedanta basically is a constant and dualist Vedanta is a constant. And we want to make a case through this. You can only do it through this kind of detailed reading, but if you actually get into the nuts and bolts of the debates, there's a lot of complexity. In some ways, there's as much contestation going on within these different traditions as there is between them. And that um, we want to make a case for a certain kind of close reading, but close reading of these debates with sensitivity to bigger cultural issues. So not just to produce an addition and translation of these short texts, but to sort of examine the debate and try and see how it fits into the broader picture of the individual life and identity of these authors, but also the sort of bigger social political movements of the time. And we tried, you know, in a preliminary way, as all we could do, to sort of address some of these bigger questions in a way that I think, I hope, and I think we hope will prompt, you know, will encourage similar studies. Uh, because this is a one little piece of a vast world of debate, most of which is almost totally unstudied, you know. The materials available to us in early modern India are 
comparable in scale and complexity and sophistication with what we find in early modern Europe, but the study of it is, by comparison, the study of it by modern scholars is, is really rudimentary in comparison with European intellectual history, and we think that's something that needs to be addressed, and we're trying in our own way to move in that direction. So for those of you out there who are grad students or prospective grad students, you heard that there's plenty of stuff here to be studied waiting for you. Um, <laughs> Yigal, was there anything else you wanted to add about the work? I think I think uh, we, we said most of what we, we had to say about it, but in a way, what, what Larry just said is that it's, a, it's an ambitious book in the sense that it wants to reach and make sense and be intelligible to these different audiences with, with different levels of background. So we, we kind of let people in very slowly into the, into the, the technical stuff. And we want, uh, we want at, at the same time to, to make a, a, a bold claim about changes and what it really means to be what it really means to be a public intellectual in 16th century India. This this is a new question that that is only begun to be asked in the last decades, and I think I think uh, this book will, will hopefully contribute to our understanding of of that question and and lead maybe to to more to more studies because, as Larry said. There is so much more to, to study here. <laughs> uh, great books are always beginnings, it seems to me, more than endings. They're, 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 they're first words, not last words. But you, can, you can argue over which is more important. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a question that I often ask at the outset of, of, of most of the podcasts. And of course, since we don't know which is more important, the first or the last, I'll end with this question that I normally ask at the outset. Tell us a bit about the genesis. How did this project come about? You can also mention the connections to the AAR and the series and all that as well. How did this come about? You know, uh, uh, we, we, we asked ourselves this question in preparation for um, for this interview, and it turns out that there are conflicting narratives here <laughs> between the two. Oh, good! As as a as a scholar of Puranas, I love this. I'll make sense of them both. Go for it. So, uh, it, as Larry said, and and on this, I think we we totally agree. We are both very much interested in this polymath in this intellectual towering figure of 16th century India, Apayadikshita. And we start reading together his works, uh, even as we were graduate students at the University of Chicago back in the 90s. Um, and then uh, both of us uh, continued to, to work both separately and together in, in a variety of areas. But, and here's where the narratives diverge, um, uh, uh, I, 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 so, so this is a work that directly takes upon, directly addresses Apaya's main intellectual, intellectual persona as a scholar of Vedanta and Mimamsa, um, which is a little bit away from my field of interest, which is mostly poetic theory, Alankara Shastra. So, uh, in my 
imagination of the origin of this project. Look, we've been working on this for about 10 years now. And the way we've been working is that we read and read and read the text together on, on mostly on Skype and Zoom. I mean, Larry is in, in, the, in Cornell, I'm in Jerusalem. Occasionally we meet and we have like these like, uh, more intensive sessions of a few days of reading and writing together. And so my recollection of this is that this must have been Larry's idea because he's more into Mimamsa and Vedanta. And he, he, somehow, he somehow dragged me into this uh, side way from my, my, area, my main area of study. And uh, Larry, 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 I think, has a different story. Maybe he should tell yeah, his version. Well, my account, because it's quite right, we've both been interested in written about Afay Dikshit in particular for a very long time now, uh, decades, I guess I should say. Uh, and we've read him for longer together. Um, and that, you know, Yigal is mostly interested in poetry and poetics. I've mostly been interested in um, Mimamsa and Vedanta, although I, I have a history in, of interest in poetics as well. And that my recollection is that Yigal more or less proposed to me that we should begin reading this uh, work of Vedanta. And I was sort of surprised and rather delighted that it, it's, you know, it's something that was very much music to my ears. But my recollection is the impetus coming from Yigal. It's interesting and characteristic, I suppose, that neither of us can quite remember or that we remember differently. This is part, uh, I should say perhaps, that this is part of a very long working relationship between the two of us. It's not simply that we, we were students together, yeah, I guess, 30 years almost, I suppose, since we met. Right? Not quite, but. Um, so we were students together and we began reading together very early. But we also, we have a sort of extended period of writing collaboration. We've written several articles together over the, over the last you know 25 years or so, and most of our projects work in, arise in a very similar way, which is to say that we begin reading text together without having any particular plan of whether we'll write something or what, and that after we've read something for a while, we sort of say, hey, we should do an article about this, or we should you know explore this further, or let's read further and let's go something else. But it's been a sort of seesawing back and forth between just reading sort of unguided reading together culminating in writing once we feel like we have something to say and because we've read together usually when we have something to say it's something we feel like we need to say together you know that if if i remember from our earliest collaboration um i sort of felt like it would be unfair in a way for me to write something about it because all the thinking had been kind of common thinking <laughs> Uh, so I think that both of us for a long time, especially for the last, what, 12 years or so, we've basically, we Skype for two hours every week, and sometimes we read, sometimes we just talk about things, sometimes we decide to write something. So we've written a couple articles together uh, as a sort of prelude to this book or a predecessor. We, um, we did a panel at the University of Madison conference in, I think, 2014 with several other scholars of Vedanta, where we presented kind of preliminary versions of our takes on particular chapters as separate papers. I wrote a paper on Vyasatirta's account and he wrote one on Apayadikshita. But by this time we had already sort of envisioned this book. Um, so it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of extended collaboration where, yeah, we've been writing, reading, thinking together so long, it's hard to disentangle who thought what first or whose idea something is. And it's become for me, and I think for you as well, that it's become a kind of, parallel intellectual life that I have. You know, I have my own work and my own interests and my own writings, and I have this, what I do together with you all, and I think it's the same from the other side. So it's been, 
it's been this extended collaboration that we've, you know, always sought to maintain and are, are we're already sort of thinking toward the next project at this point and reading, but, um, but also it's something that we've tried to um, foster as a sort of bigger element of, of Indian intellectual studies that Yigal, long before I took any steps in this direction, Yigal was part of several large projects um, in Jerusalem, bringing together scholars reading poetry and poetics for extended periods of time for, in one case, for like a year long research and reading project where people would collectively read together and then, you know, eventually produce papers and produce some edited volumes. But this importance of common reading is something we've both recognized for a long time. Uh, more recently, we were both involved with uh, this internet, this collaborative research project called The Age of Ananta, where we tried to gather 10 or 12 um, scholars, mainly in this kind of early modern uh, period, working on different branches of Ananta. But we've gotten together for three uh, sort of week-long reading workshops where we mostly just saddled and read together. Um, and you know we're planning a volume to come out of this, but it's but it's it's not like just having people come for a conference and present papers. It's something where you actually study and read and interpret the text together, and you develop a different kind of understanding in this way. That I think it's I see it as an outgrowth of what we've done together with each other, but it's sort of something we see as a broader model for the future. You know, it, it, it may well be that I've spent too much time with the Puranas, but that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> what you've said makes perfect sense to me insofar as um, it's an uh, organic uh, outgrowth. Uh, it's, it's, it's the condensation of a cross-pollination that doesn't have a discrete genesis. It's sort of... Um, it's a, a number of things that you... I'm glad I asked that question, albeit at the... At the, at the last and not the first, but I'm glad I asked about the genesis of the project because it points it points us to a couple of themes that are recursive on the podcast. And one is engagement of text uh, in a meaningful way, familiarity, immersion in text, becoming familiar with the text. It, that's very different from only understanding it intellectually for a moment. And that requires just exposure. And, and it's, it's that exposure to the text that then invites the text to prompt the question or the concern or show you the intrigue. It'll, you know, the, the, the text will, will point out what it is you need to comment on. And so it's, it's a really uh, um, interesting and, and, and rich way in which you describe your relationship to text and your relationship to the project and each other. And so um, I imagine this will not be uh, your last collaboration. <laughs> Um, for the next one, whenever that may be, you're welcome back on the podcast. <laughs> We'd love to. Thank uh, you. you. You're very welcome. And thank years, you. For, in about 10 years. Another, the next this one took us almost 10 years. The next one will be roughly as long. But. <laughs> well, either me or my successor, or who knows. Either way, <laughs> the invite is open. <laughs> um. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having us. It was it was wonderful to talk to you. Yes, likewise. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Yigal Bronner and Lawrence McRae, um, 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 co-authors of a brand new OUP publication uh, that'll be out in August, probably around the same time this podcast is coming out, called First Words, Last Words, New Theories for Reading Old Texts in 16th Century 
India. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, the nature of scholastic innovations. Take care.